excited about it. So as you guys know, uh, we're in a series on the book of Psalms, a series on the book of Psalms. We're pretty far into the series, and I'm excited to be here and to continue on that journey of walking through Psalms. So we've talked about a lot. We, we want you guys, we'd love to have you guys like reading along with us in the book of Psalms. And it really, if you just take, if you take a 10, 12, maybe 15 minutes a day and jump into your Bible and read the Psalms or even listen to the Psalms on, a, on an app or on your phone or on your radio or CD player or whatever, however you want to do it, just spend like 10 to 15 minutes a day. You can really move through the book of Psalms quickly. So it's not too late to jump in on that. If you haven't started yet, we just encourage you to jump in and start reading along with us. And I, I absolutely love Psalms. I love the book of Psalms, and I'm sure many of you do as well. And probably the main reason I like the book of Psalms so much, and I've, I've just kind of fallen in love with it over the years, is because it's just extremely relatable to us. It's so easy to relate to. Because when we look at the book of Psalms, what we see and what we see on the pages is the prayers and and the, and the worship and the praise and, and the struggles and the life circumstances of human beings like you and me. So you have human beings just like us who go through the ups and downs of life, the good and bad times of life, and they're struggling through life, trying to figure out what God has for them, trying to follow God through those good and bad circumstances of their lives. And they're trying to take the truth of God that they know and trying to figure out how that applies to their lives and how that informs their journey of faith. And it's the same kind of journey that we're all on. We're all on a journey of faith. We're trying to figure out who God is, trying to figure out what he wants for our lives. And it's awesome when we look in the book of Psalms because it's so easy for us to relate to those authors. And there's many different types of, of Psalms in the, within the book of Psalms. Let me just share a few of those with us. One is what we call the wisdom Psalms. And I like the wisdom Psalms because they're extremely practical. They're the kind of Psalms that say something like this. Hey, if you do these things and you honor God, things will go well in your life. If you don't do these things and you don't honor God, things will go bad. So they're very just straightforward, very obvious. And that's helpful to me sometimes to have things that are, that are straightforward and obvious. So that's the wisdom psalms. We also have what we call the royal psalms. And those are talking about God's power, what we call his sovereignty or his kingliness. So we think of him as being king of the universe and king of everything. And then we have the imprecatory psalms. And Pastor Jeff talked about those a few weeks back. And those are psalms where we look and, and we see the psalmist wrestling through the evil in the world and saying, God, how could you, how could you allow people to do this evil and hurt the people around us and hurt, the, hurt other people without letting it go unpunished? And there are these psalms where the psalmist is asking God to do justice on the people who are doing evil. Those are the imprecatory psalms. Then we have what we call the thanksgiving psalms. And that's where we see uh, the psalmist, as things are probably going well in life, and they're giving gratitude for God and thanking him for all the many blessings they have and all the, all the ways that God has blessed them. And then we have ones called the pilgrimage psalms. And the pilgrimage psalms were the, were the Jewish people, the followers of God in what we call the Old Testament. They would sing these psalms on the way to the festivals where they would get together and celebrate their nation and celebrate God. We would call those the pilgrimage, pilgrimage psalms. And then we have the, the prayer psalms. And we looked at one of those last week where literally we're just looking at a, at a prayer that the psalmist wrote down and seeing them kind of bear their heart before God. Then we have the lament psalms. And last time when I was here about four weeks ago, we talked about one of the lament psalms. And in the lament psalms, we see, we see the psalmist wrestling through struggles and pain and hard times and maybe even loss in their lives. And they're kind of wrestling through that pain with God saying, hey God, like I know, I know you're a loving and merciful God, but how could you let these things 
happened to me and how could you let these things go on? So those are the lament psalms. And then tonight what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the worship or we call them the enthronement psalms or the praise psalms. So it's this idea that God, he's enthroned like the Bible would say. He's on the throne of heaven and he's the king of all the universe and we're giving him worship and we're giving him praise for what he's done and for who he is. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight is what we call the worship or the praise songs. The psalm we're going to be looking at is Psalm 96. And you guys, you can actually wait to, to go in your Bibles there. You can go there if you want and just kind of mark your spot. Um, but we're looking at Psalm 96. Before that, I just want to kind of define worship for us a little bit. I think it's something that maybe isn't defined all that well in our culture. So I just want to take a little bit of time and define worship. Like, what does it mean? So if we can pop it up on the screen here. I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, and this is what I found. I just looked it up online in Webster's. It says this. It says, worship is excessive admiration for someone. You catch that first word? It's excessive. It's like more than normal. It's excessive admiration for someone. And I would, I would add to that. I would say it's not just excessive admiration for someone. It can also be excessive admiration for something. So worship is excessive admiration for someone or something. And when you think about that word excessive, right, what does it make you think of? Like when something is excessive or it's like it's in excess, what that means is like if I'm doing something excessively, the people around me are going to kind of look at me and be like, hey man, that's like a little, that's a little over the top, right? That's a little too much. You know, you spend way too much time doing this thing, or you, see, you spend way too much time with this group of people, or you spend way too much time following this person or learning about this thing. That's the idea of excess. So whenever we think of worship, I love the definition from Webster's. It's excessive admiration. It's almost like it's more than normal for someone or something. And when we think of that word obsessive or excessive, we also think, I think of obsession. Right, so there's a lot of things in life that we can become obsessed with. I know if you're anything, if you're anything like me, I tend to like move from one obsession to the other. Right, there's just one thing I'm really excited about, and I'm just completely engulfed and obsessed with that. Right, so so recently we saw the Cleveland Cavs win the championship, right, which is exciting for all of us and excited for Cleveland and this whole area. Um, but for a while. Like, we were probably all pretty obsessed with that, right? We were really, really into it. And that's kind of like what it's talking about. It's this idea of excessive admiration and almost the idea of obsession or being obsessed. That's what we're talking about when we, we talk about worship. And another, another definition I was just thinking through, I think, is this. I think, I think worship and, like, true worship of God is giving God his deserved place in our life, his deserved place in our heart. Right, because of what it, what, because of who God is, and because of what God has done for us, worshiping God is giving Him His proper and deserved place in our lives. And in our culture and in our world, there are so many things fighting and clamoring for our admiration, right? And fighting and clamoring to be on the throne of our hearts and to be the number one thing we focus on in life. We see it. Everywhere. So another definition is giving God his deserved place. And I think another thing, when we think of worship and just defining what worship is and what worship looks like, I think it's just helpful to say this. Worship isn't simply just singing songs to God. Like what we just did at the beginning of our service, like I love doing that. I enjoy it. I believe God enjoys it. It's good for us to do. I would say like that's an element of worship. 
Right? That's a thing we do that's involved in worship. But worship isn't simply singing songs to God. Worship isn't simply gathering together on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings and, and singing to God and listening to someone teach and then sing again. Right? That's part of worship. That's part of what we do. Worship is a lot more than that. It's not just singing. Worship is actually a lifestyle. Right? It's the lifestyle that we live. It's like, what do we place first in our lives? What do we focus on? What do we spend our time and energy on? That's what worship is. Worship is a lifestyle for us. Another thing I, I think is interesting is just thinking through it, is that all of us, all human beings, every single one of you, and myself included, and, and I believe all men, women, and children all over the planet, um, we're all created to be worshipers. It's something that is kind of innate within us. We all worship. We are all created to worship the one true God. Right? But what's interesting is when we don't give God his proper place in our lives, we don't, give him the num- we don't make him the number one thing in, our, thing in our lives, because we're worshipers, because we're designed to worship God, when we don't put him on the top rung of our lives, what happens is other things or other people or other groups come in and they become what we worship because we're created to worship. It's who we are. It's part of us. So we will always find something to worship if we're not worshiping God. We're created to be worshipers. And like I said earlier, many, many things, we we have many, many things in our lives and many, many things in our world that we could say like clamor or fight for our worship, right? So what I did is I actually... uh, I stole some stuff from my kids. I actually borrowed it from them. They know about it. And I just wanted to talk about a few different things. I just brought some different, different toys to kind of illustrate it for us. I thought it might be helpful. So the first thing I have here is something that I think is very, very easy for us all to worship. This is actually money from the game of life. Has anybody ever played the game of life before? Yeah, a lot of people. I don't know if it's still around or not much, but I played it a ton when I was a kid. I loved it, right? I love playing the game of life, and I think it's a pretty popular game still, and I'm sure we'll play it with our kids. And uh, right here I have these bills. I've never actually seen real bills this big in my life, but the top one here, this is like the lowest denomination I had, is a $5,000 bill. I've never seen a $5,000 bill, and it goes all the way up in the back to $100,000 bills, so I'd like to have one of those in real life. Um, but it's interesting, I was, I was reading the rule book for the game of life, and I was looking at it, and I was reading the rules and how you play it and all those things, and I got to this section called, how do I win at the game of life? How do I win at the game of life? And what's, what's interesting about the game of life, and I know it's just a game, right? We know it's a game. The way you win the game of life, if you look at that, There's some chance to it, but really, the way you win at the game of life is you get as much of this as you possibly can. You go around, you like go through the game of life, and you amass as much money as you possibly can. You try not to spend any. You just hoard all of it for yourself. You get to the end, you get to the end, and they call it millionaire's row when you're at the end, right? And if you make it to millionaire's row, you have a chance of winning. And then basically, whoever has the most money at the end of the game of life, wins the game. And I know it's a game, and I know it's kind of a fun thing to talk about, but I I think it's true for many of us, and I think it's true in our culture a lot, that that's what we spend our lives on, that's what we worship, is money or the things that we can get for money. And we spend all of our time and our energy and our resources chasing this down, trying to get as much as we can, because for some reason we believe that that's how we're going to win in life, is get as much of this as possible. But we know, we know it's not true, of course. And the th- interesting thing about money is like, 
money's not a bad thing, right? Like, I have to have money to heat my house. Uh, days like this, I have to have money for the air conditioning. I'm glad we have money to pay for the air conditioning in here. Money's not a bad thing. It's actually what we call like an inanimate object. It's not good or bad. But the Bible says when we love money, when we love it, it becomes the root of all kinds of evil within us. And that's because we're taking God down from his proper place in our hearts and we're placing money on top of that. So that's just one of those, is money. Another one I have here, this is a basketball. Anybody into basketball or sports or anything? I love, I love basketball. I used to actually be okay at it. I'm not really that good anymore. I'm getting, getting too old and fat. But this is uh, for my children's little tykes basketball hoop. And if my son knew I had it, he'd be mad at me. He always wants it. He's kind of selfish with it. Uh, but it's from his little tykes basketball hoop. And I just brought this to represent sports for us. Sports and athletics and competition. And again, like all of those things are very good. They're things that God created. And they're good for us, I believe. I think they're good for us to participate in competition. We can learn life lessons. We can push each other forward. All of these good things. But again, when we focus on these things too much, when we focus on sports, maybe playing sports and folks in our team or rooting for a team, when we focus on those too much, we move God off the proper, off the throne of our hearts, and we place sports there. So I think back to when I was in my early 20s. I was still playing sports quite a bit. I was still okay at sports. And I began to realize that in some ways I think I was worshiping sports. And this is the reason why. It wasn't just that I, it wasn't really the amount I played. That had something to do with it. It wasn't all that. The main thing was it was my heart, like how attached my heart was to sports and competition. Because what would happen to me is if I would win a game, like my team would win the game, even if it was something as simple as ping pong, something like that, or the team I was watching on TV, if they won, I would be excited and it would like keep me on a high for the next day or maybe even the whole next week. But if I lost, if I lost at something with competition, or my team lost, it would ruin my week sometimes, right? And I was like, man, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'm spending too much of my energy focusing on sports. That's one of the things that can be, can be big for us, is sports. Another one I got here, I think this is some sort of Barbie doll or something. I promise it's not mine. It's, uh, this, is, this is my daughter's doll. This is not mine. Some sort of Barbie doll here, right? And it's the same thing again. It's like God, God created us with beauty, right? And he actually created human beings, men and women, to be attracted to each other. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that he created for us, right? But when we focus on it too much and we focus everything on our looks and everything on our image, everything on our body, it becomes unhealthy, right? Is it good to like diet and exercise and work out and take care of your body? Yeah, those are all good things. Those are all good things, right? But we can, they can become an obsession for us if we focus on them too much and we can begin to worship those things. And I kind of have like the guy version of it. This is an old G.I. Joe. It's actually something like I would have played with when I was a kid. It's an older one. And it's the same thing, right? Like for us guys a lot of times, we might want to bench press the most or have the biggest biceps or win the arm wrestling competition, whatever it might be, right? Like those are good things. It's good. It's good to treat your body well. It's good to be healthy. Those are all good. But we can overdo and become obsessed and begin to worship those things. Another thing I have here, this is a video game controller. Anybody recognize this? This is from an amazing machine called the Nintendo 64. And I used to play this a lot. 
Some of you guys recognize and remember this. I used to play this a lot when I was younger, the Nintendo 64. And I brought this just to represent media to us. And it could be any type of media. It could be video games. It could be music. It could be movies. It could be videos. It could be social media. All those types of media that we interact with, right? Those are really good things. Again, God created human beings with good minds, and they're able to design these things for our entertainment. And I believe entertainment is good. God created us to enjoy entertainment, right? But again, it can go overboard. I wrote a couple stats down that I looked up online. Um, and the first one here is that about teenagers. So I guess teenagers spend an average of nine, American teenagers spend an average of nine hours a day on some type of media, whether that's video games, I'm guessing a lot of it's social media. That's teenagers, and adults aren't doing much better. I don't know the exact average for adults, but the average for any American, if you take all Americans across the board and you, you average it of how many hours they spend on media a day, it ends up being eight hours. So that's things like Facebook, Twitter, video games, music, all of those things. Again. They're not bad things. A lot of good can be done on Facebook. We can keep relationships up. We can care about people. We can love people. But again, when we take those things like media, they're not bad, but we focus on them too much. It removes God from his proper place in our lives, and it becomes very, very easy to worship. Last toy I have in the box here. This is some sort of really old, cool car. It's a Dodge. That's about all I know about it. I don't know too much about cars. But cars, again... This is kind of back to the image thing. Some of us don't really struggle with how we look that much. We don't, we don't obsess about that. We don't care about that too much. But we might focus too much on what we drive or what kind of house we live in or what kind of job we have, what kind of motorcycle we have, all of those different things, right? And again, cars are good. I'm so happy that I have a car. I'm so glad I didn't have to walk here today. Cars and motorcycles and Houses and all those things are good things that God gave us, right? But again, we can take those things that God made and we can place them above him. And then just a few other things I wrote down. I don't have any things to represent them, but just another one I was thinking of is comfort. Again, comfort is an amazing thing. We have so many comforts in the country that we live in. It's, it's unbelievable. But we can lean on those too much, and that comfort can move into laziness, and we can begin to worship that comfort. Another one I was thinking about is sex, right? Sex is a good thing. It's a very good thing that God created. When it's used in the context of marriage in the way that God designed it, in the context of a biblical marriage, sex is a very, very good thing. But we live in a, we live in a culture that is sex-crazed, Right? I think about my kids and I'm like, man, like the level of, ex of how much they're exposed to sex is everywhere. So we have to fight that. We have to fight that on a daily basis. And I especially know with men, because I'm one, that we always have to be fighting that temptation to take this good thing that God gave us called sex for a man and a woman that are married. And we can place it above God and it can be too high on our hearts. Another one is, is power. Right? A lot of us just want power. We want to be in charge. We want to make the decisions. And again, God, God created some of us to be leaders. God created leaders for us to follow, which is a good thing. That's how societies work, and that's how every organization in the world works, is we have leaders that help us. 
But again, power can creep up and we can focus too much on that and it can remove God from his proper place in our lives. And we can over-focus on that. Another one I thought of is, is control or worry. I think a lot of times control and worry kind of go hand in hand. And if you're the type of person, I'm like this sometimes, that, that I want to be able to control everything that happens in my life. Right? And if I can, I get really, really nervous and, and really, really anxious and begin to worry like crazy about the things around me because I'm not giving that over to God and I'm not allowing him to be God. I'm trying to be in control. And there's all kinds of things like this. There's all kinds of good things that God made to bless us and to help us in life Things that, that, that he created, that if we're not careful, we allow them to be what we worship. And I, I struggle with every single one of these two, some more than others, of course. But I don't think any of us are immune, because we're all worshipers. And when we're not worshiping God, we're going to be worshiping something else or someone else. There's a verse I wanted to pop up on the screen. It's uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this. It's Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 25. There it is. And it says this. Listen to this. It's talking about human beings as they're getting further and further away from God. What happens to them? Listen to what he says. This is Paul writing. He says this. He's talking about us. He says, they, that's human beings. We're part of that group, right? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. So they basically traded. Here was the truth about God. And they traded that in for a lie. Okay? And then listen to this next part. This is what we're talking about tonight. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So you have the creator God, the all-powerful one, the creator of the heavens and the earth, creator of all of us, creator of every good and perfect thing in the Bible. Would say. He's the creator, right? And what we do as human beings is we exchange that, we switch that over, and we stop worshiping the creator, and we begin worshiping the things he's made, and we flip-flop it, and things start to go crazy in our lives. That's Romans 1.25. And it just, seems, it just seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it, that we would do that? But I do it. I do it all the time. And we need to work. We need to spend some time and energy to get those things in order. And when we have God at the proper place in our lives, everything else begins to fall in place in our walk with him because we're giving God the glory that he deserves, the glory he deserves because who he is and because what he has done for us. And when we don't do that, things usually don't go too well in our lives. All right, we're going to jump to that psalm now I talked about. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 96. And if you actually, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can raise your hand and we'll give you one from the back. We have a bunch of the table over here. So if you don't have one, you just raise your hand and we'll give you one. You can look it up on your, your iPad, your phone, whatever you have. You can share with your neighbor. And we're going to be reading all of Psalm 96. It's 13 verses. Psalm 96, 1 through 13. And as we read this, I just want you to focus on one main thing. I just want us to focus on why the psalmist or the writer of the psalms, why he says we should worship God. Listen to what he says. Psalm 96, verse 1 says this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And by the way, I'll just stop there real quick. Sing to the Lord a new song. This is kind of a random thing. If you ever... 
If you ever think about the idea of like, man, should we sing new worship songs or should we just stick to all the classics or somebody brings that up with you? Right here, Psalm 96, verse 1, says, sing to the Lord a new song. God wants us to use our creativity and create new worship music and new styles of music and sing new songs to him. So that's just a little side note. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. Listen to this in verse 4. This is why, one of the reasons why. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, for he is to be feared above all gods. Which we should praise God because he's great and he's worthy of of our praise simply because of who he is. Verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And that right there, the psalmist, what he's doing is he's, he's, making, he's comparing and, tr- and contrasting God, the one true God that we worship, to the God of the nations, to the people around them. Okay? And uh, so the first one is like the uppercase God, the true God, and then it's like the lowercase gods. And he's saying, look, all the nations... All their gods are idols. They're like these little things that a human being carved. That's what the people around you are worshiping. But I created the heavens. So he's making that contrast there. Verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And that idea of holiness is is we worship God. We give God our lives and we give God everything we have because he's holy. That means he's perfect. He's he's set apart. He He makes no mistakes. He doesn't fall short. He doesn't sin like we do. He's holy. He's worthy of our praise. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. But he will judge the peoples with equity. Or we could put in that word for equity, we could put equality. So God is the only one who is worthy and able to judge all of the nations, all human beings, rightly and justly and fairly because he is perfect. He's the only one that can do that. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world and righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And what, this, what the psalmist is saying in this psalm is this. He's saying God is so great God is so majestic. God is so perfect. He's so holy. He's so righteous. He's so indescribable that all the creation worship him, worships him. The ocean worships him. The fields worship him. The forests worship him. And when we look around at those things that God created, it's just apparent who God is and we think about it. And we think about what he created. And we have the opportunity to worship God as well. 
one more verse I want us to look at, one more passage, is Isaiah chapter 40. So you can just flip over your Bibles to the right a little bit, to Isaiah chapter 40, and we will have it up on the screen as well. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to read quite a few verses of Isaiah. So we're going to read all the way from verse 10 to verse 31. So I think that's 21 verses if my math is correct. But don't worry, we'll move through it pretty quickly. So we're going to read a bunch of verses from Isaiah. And when we, when we do that, I want us to focus on one thing. I want us to focus simply on how Isaiah describes the Lord, or how he describes God. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Isaiah writes this. See the sovereign, that's the all-powerful Lord comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. So he's talking about his power and his might. See his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. Verse 11. He tends his flock as a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So right at the beginning of that. Isaiah first starts off talking about God's amazing power and it's his strength. But then he moves into God is not only a powerful God, he's also a merciful and caring and gentle God. He gently leads those that have young. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That's saying God can measure the waters of all the earth in his hand. Who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand, that's like the width of his hand, marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? It's saying God can hold the dust of the earth in a basket. Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? So that's basically who can tell God what to do? Who can, God, who can give advice to God? No one can. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Of course, nobody. He's God. He created everything. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And listen to this. It's talking about us now. Verse 15 begins to talk about us and about people. It says this. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. We're so small. We're like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. That's, this is God. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. So you think of one of the beautiful islands that you may have visited in our world. It's like fine dust to God. Just remember, he created it all. Verse 16. Lebanon, that's a forest that the, the Jewish people and the author would have known about. Lebanon, this big, massive, beautiful forest, is not sufficient for altar fires nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. So what the psalmist is saying is, if you took this gigantic forest of Lebanon and you completely cut all the trees to the ground and you build a gigantic altar to God and burnt the sacrifices from the forest on it, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be sufficient for who God is. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Verse 18, with whom then will you compare God? It's kind of a rhetorical question. We can't compare God with anything. To what image will you liken him? He's saying, what, what are you going to create? What kind of idol are you going to make that's going to compare to God? Verse 19, as for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. 
a person that's too poor, a person who's too poor for those precious metals to present such an offering, they select wood. So they get wood that won't rot, and they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. And again, he's making that comparison. He's saying, look, this is the God that deserves so much worship. If we, if we build an altar with all the forest of Lebanon, it still doesn't even compare to the greatness of God. But we tend to bow down and worship idols. You know, and our idols just look a little differently today. They're just a little different than they used to be back then. And then verse 21, I love this part. He says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, that's God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Again, that's us. God is so big we're like grasshoppers compared to him. He stretched out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes or kings to naught or to nothing and reduces rulers of this world to nothing. So even the rulers of this world are nothing compared to God. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them them away like chaff. Again, rhetorical questions. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, none of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God? And listen to this in 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired like we do. And his understanding no one can fathom. We can't understand him. He's so great. He gives strength to the weary. I love this part. And increases the power of the weak. Even youths or or teenagers grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I, and I love that. I love that passage from Isaiah 40. And, and you know, when you read it, I feel like what it does for me, it reminds me just how amazing and how great God is and just how small I am. But what's interesting about it is it, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about us. Not at all. It can sound like that at first. It doesn't mean that. What's, what's so amazing is we look at this unbelievable God who created the heavens and the earth, everything we see, everybody we see, every good and perfect thing in our lives, every good and perfect thing God created. He's all powerful. He created the universe. We don't even, scientists don't even know where the universe ends or if it ends. And God created all of that. We are so small compared to God, right? But we're, we're significant enough to him even though he's so much bigger and so much more powerful than us, that he reached down after we sinned and we we fell short of God's plan for our lives and we fell short of what God wanted for us, right? And he reached down to us and did everything he could possibly do to create a way for us to have a relationship with him once again. We're the ones, the Bible says, that were enemies of God. We were running from God. We were his enemies. We were doing the things he didn't want us to do. And what did he do? He took his only son, Jesus, 
and he sent him from heaven to earth to live a perfect and righteous life which we could never attain. And then he went to the, he went to the cross and on that cross he died in our place and he took all of our sins. He took, he took all of your sins. He took all of my sin. And sin is just when we fall short. When we don't, we don't measure up to God's standard. And we, none, of us, none of us do. We can never measure up to God's standard. He took that sin and he died on the cross and took our place for that sin. He made a way for a relationship with God to be possible once again. So it's pretty amazing. That's the God we worship. He created the heavens and the earth. He created us. And he even stooped down and knelt down at our level and sent his son to die for us. I, could, I have four kids. And there is no way I could ever give one of my kids. There's no way I could ever give one of my children's lives for somebody else. I couldn't do it. I'm just being honest. And that's what God did for us. He gave his only son to die for us and make a way for us to have relationship with him. So we need to worship that God because he is worthy of it. And I think it brings, it to this, brings us to this question of just simply this. When we think of the place God has in our heart, what is out of order in your life? What is out of order in your life? What are you, what are you placing above God right now? And I've been wrestling through this as I've been, as I've been studying for this. And, and a lot of times there's many things that I place above God. We need to think about that question. What is out of order in our lives? God created many of these things to enjoy, but it's easy to get them out of order, and then it becomes unhealthy for us. What do you worship? What do you tend to obsess over? What do you tend to think about all the time? What is taking the place of God? Or who is taking the place of God? What is that for you? And I think another question that's helpful to try and answer is, like, how do we tell what we worship? And I think there's a real, real simple answer to that. You can pop it up on the screen. It's this next thing. It's that our investment reveals our worship. Our investment re- reveals our worship. So when we're thinking about the question of, like, what do I worship? What do I struggle with? I think that's the answer. Our investment reveals our worship. So we look in our lives and what do we say, what do we invest ourselves into? Whatever we're investing ourselves into, more than anything else in our life, that reveals what we're worshiping. So whatever we're putting the most time, money, and energy into, that's our investment. That reveals to us, that begins to reveal for us what we value and what we worship. So we have to put Jesus on the throne. And the way we do that is we begin investing more in a relationship with him. Instead of all these other things that are fighting and clamoring for our time, we give God his proper place and we spend our time, energy, and our money sometimes to deepen that relationship with God and to get to know him more. So in just a couple minutes here, we're going we're gonna to sing what we call worship music or, or what we call praise music sometimes. And I think that's a, that's a very good thing. And what, what praise music is, I think what it does is it's just us like offering back to God and showing God the position of our hearts before him, that he's on the throne of our hearts. And I, I found this quote from C.S. Lewis that I thought was really helpful, and I want us to close with this. C.S. Lewis wrote this. 
He says, the world rings with praise. He's talking about the idea of praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, that's people from history, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes, I think he's being sarcastic here, even sometimes politicians or scholars. And then I love this next part. I think he kind of sums it up really well. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. I'll read that again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely or not only, it doesn't only express our joy, it doesn't just express our joy, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Then he goes on to say this. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain, valley, or of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a joke and find no one to share it with. And I think what, what C.S. Lewis is saying there is this. He's saying that we the worship God not only to express how we feel about him, but what it does when we take time to worship and praise God, it makes our joy complete in him. It's almost the idea of like we recognize the greatness of God. We recognize how small and insignificant we really are. But then we see that his grace and his mercy, he sent Jesus to die for us and make a way of salvation. And then we respond to that and we almost bring it full circle by giving our praise back to God and making our joy complete in him and who he is. So we're going to do that in a couple minutes. Let me pray for us while the band comes out.